And um, I'm just going to pray um, to launch our new series. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you speak through Rachel now, that you, um, yeah, just set on her heart um, some of the gold that is in Ezra and Nehemiah, that as we explore this ancient text, that we um, find out more about your heart for us, find out more about your heart for our communities and for those areas that um, have been left desolate. Lord God, give us the courage to be able to people that step forward to restore, rebuild, and revive this land. Amen. Amen. Well, close up and very warm welcome, particularly, just check that over there, if it's your first time today or if you're on holiday on the island, but um, yeah, so good to just gather with you guys today and I just feeling really encouraged this morning, just met some guys from Ashbourne this morning and um, just hearing some stories of like cancer, lung cancer being healed this morning. Um, already my spirit just feels really encouraged and um, and hearing stories of what those guys are doing in Ashbourne. So I just really encourage you, like one of the reasons why I love sitting around tables is I get to hear stories of what God's doing in other people's lives and other people's communities, um, which just really encourages me in, in my situation. Um, so yeah, so get to know the people around you, even if they're maybe just here for a one-off Sunday. Um, but my name's Rachel, um, I'm the team leader here at Capel Galadia at Lighthouse Church. I'm married to Alan and a mum um, to Caleb. Um, and my background is I was a maths teacher for five years in Leicester um, before um, moving back to North Wales. So I grew up in Colwyn Bay. Um, Sharakanai, thanks to my parents who sent us to a Welsh school, which I'm really, really um, glad they did. And um, yeah, now I get the privilege of being part of this community, leading the team here, um, being part of the 20 small group, uh, which I love um, a lot. So this Sunday, we are starting our adventure into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, they're two books in the Old Testament, but originally they were actually written as one story. Okay, so there are kind of similar um, timelines they're actually about three guys. So they're actually about um, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So pretty harsh that Ezra gets a book named after him, Nehemiah gets booked after him. Poor Zerubbabel, he does loads of work. Is there a book named after him? No. But um, So it's the story of all three of them. And where you'll find the book of Ezra and Ni uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. And we call them history books. And nothing clever about the name, it's just because that's what they are. They are books, they're like historical accounts of what was happening in Israel at th that specific period of time. So if you just kind of have a little look, those are all the books of the Bible. So Ezra and Nehemiah together, just after First and Second Chronicles, before Esther. And basically, they're history books telling the story of the Jewish people returning to their homeland. So they're returning to the city of Jerusalem in Judah. Okay, So they've been held captive in Babylon. So the Babylonian Empire have taken over. And for 70 years, the Israelites have been like, they've been refugees, basically, over here in Babylonia. And now they're starting in waves to go back to their homeland. So back to Jerusalem there. 
So they've been there for 70 years, and basically the Babylonian Empire been this really, really, really powerful empire. So think of like USA and the China are like the really big superpowers of today's day and age. Back then, it had been the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar had come and basically destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed their temple, got rid of loads of the more prominent citizens of Jerusalem, and he'd taken them as refugees over to Babylonia. So they were, they were, we say they were deported. So if you had like a craft, if you were skilled in something, if you were wealthy, if you were a priest, if you were like some sort of professional in um, Jerusalem, you'd been deported over to Babylonia. And the rest of it, there were some Jews still living in Jerusalem. So if, if you kind of weren't seen as very important, Nebuchadnezzar just kind of left you in Jerusalem, but there was nothing really there because he destroyed everything. Um, so they were living in quite a lot of poverty. So if you imagine, for the Jews, it was a massive time of reflection in Babylon. You know, like when things don't quite turn out the way we expect. We often have like a time of reflection of what the heck has happened to my life? Like what on earth has gone wrong? What could we have done differently? Who do I blame? Why am I in this situation? Whose fault is it? And what do I do now? I don't know about you, I had a bit of a season like that. When I was um, 18, I'd applied to do medicine. That was kind of my career path in my head at 17, 18. Anyway, I got rejected. I didn't get into any of the universities I'd applied to. And so I was like, oh, well, that didn't turn out the way I thought. What do I do now? So I took two years out. And basically, it was that. This is time of reflection. I was doing something that I love, just doing youth work for my church. I'm just trying to figure out what do I do next. It was reflecting on, okay, stuff hasn't quite turned out the way I thought it would. What am I going to do now? So it was kind of like that's where the Israelites are. They've had a time of reflection of what on earth has gone wrong. Because if you imagine before this period, before Nebuchadnezzar had come and destroyed the temple and chucked them all out of their homeland, these guys had been on top of the world. If you know a bit of the Old Testament story, like Moses had led them out of slavery in Egypt. They'd been called to be God's chosen people. They were like, right, we're coming out. The Red Sea has been miraculously split. They're like coming through. There's this amazing miracles coming. And wow, it's amazing. Joshua's just led them into the promised land. They're in Jerusalem. They've got all this incredible land, great crops. All the territories are terrified of them. They've got this great King David, who's like this amazing warrior, who's like defeating everybody. They are living the high life, the Israelites. Everything is going well. Nobody can touch them. They're like, yes, we are doing well here. Go us. And then it all just goes wrong. And they end up over here. And so they're just in that period of, what has happened? God, what about all those promises you said to us about us being a chosen people? I don't feel very chosen right now. I feel a bit like a victim. I feel a bit neglected. What is going on? And so they came up with a few conclusions. You get a sense that this is the conclusions they come to during this reflection period was, that they'd betrayed God. 
They'd ignored or manipulated God's law. So those Ten Commandments that they'd given, that Moses, God had given Moses, they, they'd kind of got it a bit wrong. They'd stuffed up on that. They'd allowed a culture of corruption. They'd allowed the priests. There was a lot of corruption going on. And they'd failed to keep themselves holy. So they hadn't kept themselves as like a holy people. They totally ignored the holy day, the Sabbath that God had given them. You know, they'd forgotten that they were worshipping a holy God that required holiness from them. So there's a real awareness in the people of, okay, actually, it's us who's stuffed up. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah come in, in that season of Israel's story. And what's interesting about this time in history is that actually there are no big signs or wonders in this particular period in these two books. Neither of them accomplish like anything miraculous or huge deliverance. Ezra really is a massive Bible nerd. He just loves the Bible and he gets everybody else to take the Bible seriously. That's kind of like what Ezra is really good at. And Nehemiah is essentially a project manager. You can just imagine like Kevin McLeod coming on on Grand Designs, interviewing him like, how's it going? How are the walls of Jerusalem coming along? He's essentially like a project manager for the rebuilding of the ancient walls of Jerusalem. So here we are. The Jews have messed up. They know they've messed up. They're on their way home. They're going back to Jerusalem after 70 years. And they know what they've got to do. They're like, right, we have stuffed up, but now we know what we need to do to succeed as God's people. They knew, right, if we're going to be the epicenter of the new kingdom of God, if we're going to be a nation that brings peace to all nations, you know, this is going to be it. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. God's going to restore everything, like all the prophecies in, in Isaiah 2 and Jeremiah 31. They're all going to come true. Like, this is it. We know what we've got to do. Just keep God's law. Keep ourselves holy and devote ourselves entirely to God. That's all we've got to do. This is it, guys. We're back to Jerusalem. Those prophecies are ours. But they fail. They try, bless them. But all it takes is a few difficult circumstances. A bit of pressure, either from within or without. And they slip back into old habits, behaving the way they used to be. It's like, you know when January comes and you're like, right, this is it. This year is going to be the year that I get like my exercise regime on track. I have been to TK Maxx, got all the leggings, the tank tops. I've got all the gear every week. Put it in my planner. Right, I'm going to go running here, 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 here. There we go. And then like you have quite a tiring week at work or it's raining and you're like, I just won't go today. But tomorrow I am on it. And by March, like, you realize you haven't actually been running for a few weeks. It's all gone to pot. This is kind of like the Israelite story. They knew what they had to do, and they tried really, really hard. But as soon as, like, a bit of pressure, the realities of life comes in, they just can't do it on their own. They keep messing up God's law. They keep violating the Sabbath. They keep allowing corruption to come in. And this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, really. They see some amazing stuff in their lifetime, but they also experience huge disappointments and failures. 
I love these stories because they're so realistic. They're realistic stories of ordinary people, full of passion and love for God. And they do everything in their power to lead the Israelites into a new era of devotion to God. And it doesn't work. We'll look at the end of Nehemiah. And it's basically Nehemiah in tears, angry, beating the Israelites for violating the covenant commands of the Torah. In other words, Nehemiah literally loses it because the Israelites are trading on the Sabbath. And they're meant to be resting and focusing on God. And I don't mean like passively aggressive losing it with the Israelites. I mean like physically there's pulling hair and everything. So what do we take from that? Often we're like, you know, the heroes of the faith, Nehemiah. I'm going to tell you all, when things don't go to plan, just pull each other's hairs out because that's what Nehemiah does. But this story isn't really about them because actually they're just human. And actually the Bible isn't really about humans because the Bible's just as honest about the successes as the failures. Yes, we love the stories of Adam or Noah, Moses, Abraham, Jacob, David, Ruth, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, they all do some great things, but they also really mess up, and they also go through huge disappointments, because actually the Bible isn't their story. It's God's story. It's that divine partnership that we looked at last term as part of the glorious gospel, that the Bible's focus throughout is the story of God. And that's what we find in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's no different. It's the story of who God is. They show that the law of unintended consequences and inevitable human failure will always compromise the best of our plans. But that doesn't mean Ezra and Nehemiah shouldn't have tried. Their stories give us hope and inspiration to keep pointing other people to God's grace and keep calling them and ourselves to faithfulness and devotion because ultimately it's learning more about who God is and not our successes. So we're going to start our series this morning in Nehemiah and we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and go through that today. So if you've got Bibles in front of you, if you use your phone, it's going to be up on the screens as well. So we're at Nehemiah 1, verse 1. So the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, who knows how we say that, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, um, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. 
Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This was such a blow for Nehemiah to hear. So like they wouldn't have had Facebook or like BBC News updating them on how some of the Jews that had gone back to Jerusalem were going on. So they've like, he's like said goodbye to a whole load of his mates and now he's waiting to hear, how are you getting on in Jerusalem? We're God's chosen people. We're going to rock it, aren't we? And he's hearing, oh, okay, there's been a whole load of opposition and the walls are still destroyed. Yes, the altar's been built, the temple's been built, but the walls keep getting battered by enemies or neighbor neighboring territories. He's gutted, like really gutted. And what really inspires me about Nehemiah is he's so gutted and it doesn't actually really impact him. Like he's still in Babylon. He's got a really good job. He's like quite high up. He's the king cupbearer. He's got a lot of influence. He's really trusted by the king. He's like miles away from the Jews in Jerusalem. He could just have heard it and said, okay, I'll get it for you. See ya. But he mourns and fasts for days. I think this is a really beautiful picture of what real community looks like. Putting the needs of others before our own. Sacrificing our own successes for the sake of others. Not complaining about what we want, what we want things to look like, but instead laying down our own wants and needs for God, what do you want for us as a people? What do you want for this community? How can I serve? The story goes on. We'll pick up in verse 5. This is Nehemiah. Then I said... Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my family and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. What an incredible, humble, and faith-filled response that Nehemiah gives to these circumstances. He doesn't start, notice, he doesn't start with his request to God. He doesn't have a moan about how awful things are in Jerusalem. He starts with this incredible statement, just like Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer. Notice the similarities between that prayer and the Lord's Prayer. He starts with this incredible statement of who God is. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He has such a devotion and a confidence in who God is. That everything else that comes, comes from this understanding of who God is. It's not about him. It's about who God is. 
It's not whether about I'm good enough. It's about who God is. He shows us a real maturity and understanding of God's character, which gives him the right perspective. Someone just turned the heaters down. It's quite hot. I don't know if that's because I'm getting into this. (laughs) Everything that Nehemiah does comes from the right perspective of who God is, the loving nature of God and his holiness, the fact that God is loving, powerful, and holy. But he also knows his place. He's fully aware of his actions, the actions of his family, and of his whole community. And this, I think, is really countercultural. He takes responsibility and says sorry, not just for the stuff that he's done, but his whole family and for a whole nation. I don't know if you guys recently have said sorry to God for all the decisions in Brexit. Probably not. We've probably said, would you help those lot in charge? Pointed the finger, disassociated ourselves. And here's Nehemiah saying, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for what everyone in my family's done. And I'm sorry for everything my nation has done. That he's so connected to his community that when they mess up, he mess ups. When they're in pain, he's in pain. And I think that's a challenge for us when we live in our individualistic culture where it's all about me, stuff my neighbor. That I think the challenge of interceding and saying sorry on behalf of not just us, but our community is something that we really need to look at. He doesn't play the victim. He doesn't play the blame game. He doesn't blame the powers above. He doesn't even blame it on King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the one who physically came in and destroyed everything. He says, no, in his humility, we've messed up here. This is our responsibility. You can't control anybody else. The only person you can control is you. And although we loads of that stuff might be true, we might have an awful boss, we might have had an awful upbringing, you know, the king might have been really harsh on Israel when he attacked them and destroyed them, but Nehemiah had a really clear perspective on who God is and who he was. He was somebody who had messed up, but who was forgiven and deeply loved by God. And this perspective enabled him to go and be the change that he wanted to see. It wasn't dependent on him being perfect. It wasn't dependent on him doing it in his own strength or him just standing by and doing nothing, the kind of weeping and mourning, just continuing and continuing. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's quite, if you've studied any sort of psychology, you've probably have seen the iceberg. But everything we see in each other, our behaviors, comes from ultimately our core values, our perspective on things. So if an event happens, 
and there's a behavior that comes out of it, it's actually not because of the event. It's because of the belief or perception that we have. Let me just um, give you a bit of an example with, I think, how this would have played out. If Nehemiah's perspective was just slightly different, how I think his response would have been different. So, the activating event. He hears the news that Jerusalem's wall is still in ruins. What's his belief? If his belief is that he is not good enough, he's messed up, his people aren't good enough, and they're just going to keep messing up, then the behavior, the response that's going to come from that is despair. Probably become depressed about the state of Jerusalem, probably do a lot of complaining. He'd probably do a lot of moaning about how awful everything is. Why? Because his belief is we're not good enough. It's rubbish. We fail every time. What's the point? The behavior is we just moan and complain and don't do anything. Okay? That's one one perspective. Next slide. So the next one could be, right, he hears the news that Jerusalem's walls is still in ruins. What's his perspective? God is great and awesome. He keeps his covenant of love with his people and cares about our needs. What would his response be? He asks God for his favor, leaves his role as cupbearer to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But comes up against issues, opposition, He then starts questioning God, his existence when things don't go to plan, and gives up. His perspective, response. So actually, what is his perspective here? I think there's a third perspective that he has. So he hears the news that Jerusalem's wall are still in ruins. But he has a perspective that God is great and awesome. He keeps his covenant of love with his people and cares about our needs. Probably thinking, we've just had this one, Rachel. Rachel, you're just repeating yourself. But I think there's another perspective that he has that goes hand in hand with God is good, which is this. He is not good enough. He's messed up. His people are not good enough. And he'll keep messing up. So what's his response? He asks God for his favor, leaves his role as cupbearer to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He comes up against opposition. He fails loads of times, but he keeps his devotion to God and what he's called him to do. Because he had a clear perspective of who God was. But he also had a clear perspective of who he was. He went into it knowing, I'm a sinner. I'm 100% going to fail at least two or three times on this. Actually, it's not about my success rate. It's about being faithful to God and what God wants. When, um, when I started off doing my teacher training, they did this really helpful thing with us. So I started training in an inner city school And I did a thing called Teach First, so you train on the job. And throughout all our training, we had an intense six-week training, and then we were chucked into the classroom, and we were meant to be the teacher. Like, for real, not a student teacher, the actual teacher. And all through my training, they were like, you're going to be rubbish. 
Like literally the first term, you're not going to have a clue what you're doing. You will be rubbish. You won't be a good teacher. But stick with it. Keep learning. You'll get better. So I went into my teacher training with this perspective of, I fully well know this is going to be really awful. and <laughs> I'm going to be an awful teacher to start off with. And I was. I had no classroom control. It was absolute carnage. For the first few weeks, I don't think a kid learned a single thing. But my perspective was I knew that was going to happen. I knew I had to go through that to learn, to review. The teachers in the room are like, yep. <laughs> Our perspective is the thing that will result in our, in our actions. What people actually see comes from our perspective. And I think this prayer shows Nehemiah's perspective, who God is and who we are. The last bit of Nehemiah's prayer is this. So we're at verse 8. He says to God, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you are exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he kind of signs the prayer, uh, this uh, chapter off at the end. of. Oh, by the way, I was a cupbearer to the king. This opening prayer of Nehemiah, I think, gives us a really important insight into his perspective that frames the rest of his story. Everything comes from a devotion to God. This is God's story, not his story. Knowing that he is a loving, gracious, and faithful God but also from knowing who he is. He calls himself, Joel, a servant of God, a sinner, but forgiven, who belongs to God's family, the people of God. I am um, going to pray, and then there's just a few questions that I'm going to uh, leave us on here. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that scripture is the story of who you are. Your amazing, loving covenant promise to us. Your forgiveness of us. Your faithfulness, despite us messing up time and time again. Your mercy, but your holiness and righteousness as well, God. The Bible is your story. And God, would you give each and every one of us, by your Holy Spirit, a clear perspective 
of who you are. But Father God, would you also, by your Holy Spirit, give us a clear perspective of who we are. Your people, broken, hurting, but forgiven. Created in your image, your servants, Father God, to partner with you. To hear and look out for what you are doing. And to act accordingly. Thank you, Father God, that you don't look at success rates. But that you look at devotion. So, Father God, I want to pray for any people here right now that is stopping from stepping out because they don't feel like they're good enough. God, would you shift their perspective onto you? But that doesn't matter because you are good enough. Amen. So we're going to pick this up more in small groups over the next few weeks, these questions. And those of you that um, have a, like a one-to-one discipler, be really good to kind of unpack this um, with your discipler. But I just would um, really encourage you just for the next few minutes to maybe just share what's landed What is your perception of God? What is your perception of yourself? What is your perception of others? What is your perception of God's call on your life? And I'd just love us to kind of have the next five minutes. If there's anyone on your table that particularly needs prayer for one of those, of like, I actually don't feel like I know who God is, or actually I don't really know who I am, then let's just take space to pray for each other. You don't need someone from the front to pray. You guys, if you've been following Jesus, I'd give you permission to be the prayer team. So Matt, if we could have some music. Now give us five minutes just to kind of discuss and pray for each other on this stuff.